So really great to be part of this podcast. My name is Mark Gallagher, as you know, and my background is, um, uh, I hate to admit this, 40 years working in Formula One this year. And um, I spent uh, the first decade of my career working in the media and public relations. I then spent a decade and a half working with a guy called Eddie Jordan, who founded the Jordan Formula One team. And uh, I was on the board of Jordan. Um, and then I finished my race team career with Red Bull Racing. And my final executive role in Formula One was running a company in Northampton in the UK called Cosworth, which uh, makes engines and electronics and software for Formula One. And for the last decade, I've run my own consultancy business in Formula One, working with uh, a few drivers whose names you would all know, uh, team principals, some commercial partners, and that's me. So fun fact about me is that I was a consultant on the Disney Pixar movie Cars. In fact, Cars 1 and Cars 2, which involved working with John Lasseter, who founded Pixar with uh, none other than Steve Jobs. And, um, and that's, that's my fun fact. I'm Phil Hobden. And I'm Ollie Cadell. And you're listening to the Practice Evolution podcast brought to you by Walters Kluwer Tax and Accounting UK. In this podcast series, we talk to industry leaders, influencers, fellow accountants and technology experts to address key issues impacting you, the accountant, as you continue to evolve your practice and adapt to the ever-changing needs of both your teams and your clients. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Ollie. I'm super, super excited about this episode. Oh, that's good. I'd like to see you happy. Um, <laughs> no, thank, you. thank you for the welcome back. I, I've not recorded for about six weeks. It's been a really long time. And it, it, do indulge me for a second. I do want to say a very quick thank you to everyone who's sent me their feedback on the last episode I recorded, which was the Pride Month two-hander that we did, which was a you know really uh, personal episode to me in particular. And people have been very forthcoming in their uh, in their positive feedback for that one so thank you for that but we'll move on why are you happy phil <laughs> well i finally get to talk uh finally get to bring formula one which is my other passion into our podcast um so <laughs> so i first met mark our guest today at a walters clue event just over a year ago when he spoke to a room of our biggest customers around teamwork and networking as well as enthralling us with some stories about his time working with some of the the biggest and greatest in formula one he also told me a fantastic story about uh, a legendary uh, british formula one driver as well which made me laugh um so mark welcome to the podcast <laughs> Uh, it's great to be here, Phil. Thank you so much uh, to both of you for inviting me uh, to join you. And great to be part of a Walters Clearer uh, event again, because uh, I think I've actually spoken for your company on about three occasions at conferences, uh, including Europe. And uh, I've always really enjoyed it. There's AC. Oh, Mark, hold on a sec. We've got. Sorry, Mark. We've got some sound issues. Um. I don't know if, if we all pop off video, it might help with the sound, uh, with the um, bandwidth a little bit. Yeah, okay, I've switched mine off. Yeah, I'll switch mine off as well. I think Mark yeah, froze. Sure. Perfect. Sure. Sorry, Mark, that was a great, that was sure. a great at the start as well. Okay. Of course, we now we now don't know if everyone's still there. <laughs> the irony. 
So I'll, I'll use semaphore or something, Phil. <laughs> Are you still with us, Mark? Uh, well, if he is, Maybe. we can't hear him. Okay, That's right. he just popped off. So let's uh, bring this call. And in three, two, one. Go. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Great to join both of you and uh, really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, and it's great to have you back um, working with us here at Walter's Crew. Clearly, uh, you, you, you've worked with us a uh, three or four times in the past, I think, and you know, always been fascinating to see how kind of what you've talked about in terms of Formula One and the applications within business for accountants has always resonated really well. So, um, yeah, no, welcome back. Look, Mark, I want to talk to you just before we kind of get onto the, the the analytics and business stuff. Your journey is fascinating. Um, how did you kind of? I just want to dig in a little bit and find out how did you get into broadcasting and then obviously through <laughs> Philip Morris and, and you ended up into like working with Eddie Jordan. And I would have thought yeah. that back then when Jordan was very much this kind of, you know, Formula One team, new to the grid, new to Formula One, Eddie had never run a Formula One team before. It's a bit of a, a bit of a, um, I would suggest a, a risky move at that point, no? I, actually, it didn't feel that way. In fact, quite the opposite. And I'll tell you why. And that is that um, Jordan was a startup and, uh, when you're invited to join a startup, you actually quickly see that there's an opportunity to uh, perhaps be a, a larger cog in the machine because, you know, I think there were, I think I'm right in saying that when I started working with Eddie on a full-time basis, the team had a total of 33 staff. So it was, a, <laughs> you, know, a t- you know, I mean, for, for listeners, um, you know, Red Bull Racing today employs uh, 1,600 uh, people <laughs> on Formula One. So, so 30, 30 odd years ago, there were 33 of us. And uh, I always remember a management meeting early on in the piece when Eddie said, you know, we seem to be employing a lot of people. He said, if this company ever employs 100 people, I will not be running it because I can't <laughs> run a company. You know, I, you know, I can't run a company where I don't know the name of every person who passes me in the corridor. So uh, that soon went out the window. So at our peak, we employed 300 people at, uh, at Jordan Grand Prix. But going back to your point, you know, it was a, it was sort of an opportunity to be in at ground zero, uh, to use that terrible expression, you know, of, of a of a startup business. And uh, that that's what really appealed. Plus also, you know, there was also a cultural thing. I'm, I'm from Ireland. Uh, Eddie was from Ireland. Our technical director was Irish. Our, actually, our chief financial officer was Irish. So basically a group of Irish guys coming together and trying to do something which, um, you know, felt felt terribly exciting. And I mean, let's face it, what was the worst that could happen? Eddie was still <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> that was, that was, that was I- the worst. I guess it's true, right? A lot of the, uh, there was a, a lot of risk on. And I mean, obviously, Eddie had run um, rating teams before, and he, yeah. he had that experience. But like, I, I think you've seen it over the years, and anyone that follows Formula One will see it over the years that, that quite often that step from from smaller smaller teams and, and smaller formulas up to Formula One is is quite brutal. There's quite a a funding gap and a, a kind of yeah. technology gap at the top. Yeah, I, I always describe it as. You know, if you go from Formula Two or as it was back then, Formula Three Thousand to Formula One, it's like going from schools football to Champions League. Uh, 
it's uh, I mean, it, it's not just one division higher. It's in a entirely different, uh, you know, strata in terms of complexity, financial risk. You know, you have to you literally have to become a car manufacturer, which means you need design, research and development, manufacturing, supply chain, logistics. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of things which, you know, quite frankly, uh, teams are unprepared for. And, and more than once, Eddie said to me gosh, if I'd realized what was involved in this, you know, I might never have done it. But I think that's the, I think that's sometimes the beauty of startups is a lot of entrepreneurs don't know the detail of what lies ahead, but actually that's a good thing because otherwise they wouldn't try. And it's really important to try. And we certainly, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say it was all, all sweetness and light. It wasn't an easy journey, but we had a ultimately a very successful one and it worked out very well financially for Eddie as the risk taker, as the entrepreneur who put literally, you know, all his money on the line. So, considering you had, um, you know, that was the first season in, in Formula One and you, you literally bought that team together from nothing. Yeah. It was a pretty, pretty successful first season, right? You were definitely punched above your weight that year. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm right in saying that in 1991, there were, 15 teams in formula one 15 or 16 i think there was a 16th team that came and went but um there were 15 or 16 teams we finished fifth in the teams championship and so we beat a lot of very very well established teams and actually more than that we threatened the big four and the big four at the time were ferrari williams mclaren and benison so we were the we were the team that finished just behind them and everyone could see that we were a tiny operation so we did that thing which is you know called a giant killing act uh you know we came in and and had some remarkable really really remarkable races and successes and uh we gave a guy called michael schumacher his uh debut in formula one at the belgian grand prix that Ooh. year uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly so um you know we, we we had a we had a remarkable season but again it you know with hindsight you know looking back reflecting the other thing that that year brought home to us was that we there was no way we could repeat it because you can come into an industry and disrupt to a point but if you don't have the scale as a business to sustain that um you're really going to struggle so and we weren't able to sustain it and one of my reflections on working at jordan over those that decade and a half was that most times where we had an amazing year, uh, we actually used up all the available bandwidth to do that. And it meant that we were caught short the following year. So we 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 didn't we weren't able to sustain that. And that that's where I really learned a lot about the importance of scaling a business so that you can sustain that performance. Sustaining performance is so much more difficult than achieving the odd one off victory. Yeah, I, it's really interesting listening to you talking about that journey and scaling up the business. I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of the customers that I speak to will identify with that. And, you know, mm. they are quite often running small practices of mm. even smaller, possibly, you know, four or five staff. And they have that ambition to yeah. grow the practice to 30, 40, 50 more staff and are looking, they come to us for you know the technological foundation of course but they also ask those questions about 
How do I maintain the quality of service? How do I uh, retain that kind of human touch and the, the relationships that I build with my employees, my clients? And it sounds as though that that's a real challenge they find. You know, the bigger an organization grows, the, the less in touch you are with every individual within it. What would be your yeah. thoughts on how you sort of retain the humanity in, during that growth journey? <laughs> I mean, this is such a fantastic topic, really, because uh, it's one that uh, it's one I think that the three of us probably live every day. You know, we're in a very fast changing business environment constantly. And we also uh, know the power of technology, particularly connectivity and digital technologies that are available. Uh, it's an, you know, that's such a, a fantastic suite of tools available to us these days to enable us to connect and uh, communicate and integrate with our customers in, in, in how we're operating. But the fact is that you need both the technology and the people. And certainly within Formula One, I think our our real finding is that uh, te technology in its broadest sense, and if you take digital transformation, you know, we've had 35 years of digital transformation in Formula One. And all that that has done is enabled us to deliver so much more powerfully and pretty well every area of our business. I don't even know why I said pretty well. I mean, every area of our business has been transformed because of the digital environment and our data-driven approach to running our businesses. But we also know that if you don't have a super team of people who are customer focused and who keep that human element alive, uh, that the technology on its own is not going to do the job for you. So you you really need the best of both. You need the best of people, you need the best of technology, and then you get those systems and processes put in place that enable the two to work in harmony. And in Formula One, that, I mean, in some ways, that's the magic formula. It's about, you know, people and technology, you know, team, teamwork and technology, I always say, is the, is the key thing to achieving success in our business. Did you encounter resistance to that digital transformation in the sense that you know that some people are excited at the prospect of new solutions others feel uh perhaps unsettled by it possibly intimidated or, or worried about it what what was the response that you you got during that process uh it's really it's funny you ask me that question because i have a distinct recollection of a rather uh how can I put this politely? Rather gnarly engineer, you know, sort of slightly, uh, <laughs> slightly, slightly hard right work. Uh, yeah, engineer um, who had many, many, many years of experience, and him saying, "Oh, these young, these young engineers with all of their data and their algorithms and their, you know, software. I mean, they just drive me nuts because." Um, you know, it's pretty obvious what we have to do to make this car go faster. And and that that was the resistance we had. So we we did have an older group of engineers, I would say, during the 1990s and into the early 2000s, who perhaps unconsciously were resisting the 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 acceleration towards a data driven environment. But I have to tell you that that was a very short lived period because the benefits were so obvious. I mean, we literally uh, transformed the way we go about engineering fast racing cars because we had the data and the data, the truth is in the data. That's a, you know expression that I 
I love to use, you know, there's no argument about what the data is showing you. You can see it in black and white, in zeros and ones, in, you know, it's there in front of you on the screen. And in a, and in a Formula One team, you have a group of engineers, you have two Formula One drivers, they're all sitting around looking at the data, and it is unarguable. So it's this isn't about, we used to have lots and lots of kind of subjective discussions about what if we did this, or should we maybe try that? And it was all about gut feeling and experience and you know it was a little bit of a journey of hope um whereas with data we have a journey of knowledge and it takes all the guesswork out of it so you know in the good old days nigel mansell could come into the team and complain about how dreadful the car was but of course these days the driver comes in and we know how dreadful the driver was so we <laughs> we, we, we uh, you know it's the ultimate big brother system you know the, the formula one drive any formula one driver now who makes a mistake on track knows that about 60 engineers have just spotted the error that they've made while driving the car so it, there's just no room to hide but that's actually fantastic because it has supercharged our ability to you know create an environment where we have to be open and honest and transparent about how we're doing and uh, you know sharing information uh, very quickly i mean literally real time sharing information and it's transformed our outcomes and uh, you know i recently was speaking at a conference in in london for a very large energy uh, company and it was a, it was a health and safety conference and they were asking me about how formula 1 has transformed its approach to risk management and safety and i said well you know, risk management and safety has been transformed because we have the data from past events, which means we can plot future outcomes and we can use data analytics to look at, you know, what's around, literally what's around the corner, you know, what's what, what will happen if this system degrades any further or what will happen if it starts raining in five laps time? You know, we, we literally have that, we have the capability to do that. And who wouldn't want to have that? I mean, that's the other thing is we are curious to have knowledge about how to ensure a winning outcome. And that's what our digital journey has enabled us to achieve. I'm, a, just, I'm just imagining being a fly on the wall in that moment when a Formula One driver is being called <laughs> by 60 engineers where they've all gone wrong. I was, I was gonna, I, actually, I was gonna ask that. I was gonna ask that exact question. You know, how do you, because Formula One drivers are, you know, they are absolutely the top of their game. They are the, the best of the best. And and with that becomes a certain level of, um, I don't know if ego is the right word, but maybe it is, right? You have to, I think you need a, an ego to be able to, to do that. How do you approach a, a, a top tier Formula One driver and say, yeah, you, you might think it's that, but actually it, it, it's you. Actually, you're not lifting at the right time or you're, you're, breaking too early and, and despite the fact you think it's the car actually if you did it this way yeah how do you approach that conversation because again i think that resonates through business right when when you try to bring data-led analytics to, to people that have always kind of been at the top of yeah. their game and it changes their opinion yeah. and stuff well one of the things that we can do and i mean we it's the royal we so it's everyone so the driver the engineers whatever we can put we can we can zoom in on a piece of data that is important to discuss so if the driver makes a mistake we can put a marker against that on the data and when the team sits down for a debrief at the end of the day the driver will walk into that room look at the screen and immediately see where he made an error or where he could have gone faster and the thing is because we have two formula one drivers we can overlay one driver's data with the teammates data so you can actually see the delta in performance between one and the other. So 
uh, if you look at this year's Formula One World Championship, uh, Max Verstappen for Red Bull Racing, his teammate is Sergio Perez. Um, Max is leading the championship. Sergio's having a tough time. Well, actually, one of the toughest times for Sergio will be sitting in those technical meetings where his data is being overlaid with Max's, and Sergio will be able to see precisely where he's going wrong. And and this is why I go back to the point about the fact that it takes a, it takes away the subjectivity. Uh, it, it makes it a much more objective discussion, and actually, it, it to some extent removes some of the sting for the engineers. So you don't really need to explain to the driver in too much detail where they've gone wrong because it's it's there in front of them it's visible it's it's instantly recognizable as to where the the challenges are so to your point if a driver is braking a few meters earlier than his teammate for a particular corner the they can see that if uh, if one driver is using top gear to go through a corner flat out and the other driver is feathering the throttle and changing down gear well again you know you can see that and there are lots of examples and stories over the years of of the, precisely that happening where one teammate sits down looks at the data of their other teammate and says wow you know how the heck are you doing that because i can't do that in the car so actually it's um again it drives to great transparency and of course that's uh, that's a good thing in any team that's trying to trying to beat the opposition I've loved one of my favorite, um, if you look at kind of data and technology, one of my favorite things is watching how the TV side of Formula One's um, changed over the years. You look yeah. back, you look back at old races when they kind of get screened on Sky now and you realize just how basic the data that we were seeing as viewers were. And, and now I saw a, a great one. I can't remember what race it was this season, but where they overlaid the qualifying of the two drivers. And I think they were, it was that one, it was that race where they were like a, like a, a hundredth or a thousandth of a second off each other and they just overlaid right. it perfectly and you just that kind of bringing that data beyond the team and, and, and making it accessible to the viewers for me i think has really enhanced the experience of watching formula one it's really made it quite quite fascinating i think it kind of allows people to see just some of the complexity behind the behind the sport and and, and just a level of those the, the data that's available to to the teams Exactly. So I think, again, in the old days, uh, a commentator like Murray Walker would have said, well, those two drivers are separated by a tenth of a second, and isn't that incredibly close? And you'd kind of take his word for it. And obviously, a tenth of a second feels close. But nowadays, we can overlay the laps, and we can show what a tenth of a second looks like in reality. And of course, over a five-kilometer racetrack, a tenth of a second is just it's just nothing, you know, it's a few centimeters of difference, but the end of the, at the end of the lap. And so what that does is it really brings home to the, the fans um, and illustrates for the fans, the marginal nature of what competitive advantage looks like in formula one. It really is, you know, to use that old phrase, it's, it's about split second, you know, split second timing. And there are so many things can go wrong. I mean, there's there's lots of complexity in the car, lots of technology, lots of variables that can affect outcomes. And so this is where companies that, uh, I mean, I think one in six companies involved in Formula One now in terms of commercial partnerships come from the digital and technology sector. So it's about, you know, 12 and a half to 15%, uh, I think, of, uh, of, of the companies are... Um, 
uh, from that sector. And and the reason is because they they regard it as a great opportunity to showcase how you can use connectivity, digital technologies, data analytics, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to to improve performance. And so packaging packaging our sports so that the media and the fans can understand the complexity in far greater detail uh, is just, you know, that's uh, been a great new chapter for us to be able to open up. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that in terms of the the analysis that I see on on Sky and BT and, and so on. And one of the things that strikes me as a sort of counterbalance to that is that the analysis I see is less is less focused on the emotions of the sport in that I think analysis is more rational. It's, it's less driven by sort of emotive reaction. I remember at the end of last Premier League season and disclaimer, I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm over the heartbreak at this point, but <laughs> once it had become clear that Arsenal had, had blown the league and it was, you know, being compared to, Newcastle in the 90s under Kevin Keegan and so on and I can remember Gary Neville saying that in 2023 you know we're a lot more careful about the language we use and 20-30 years ago this Arsenal team would be being hammered in the press at this point now maybe social media has taken on that mantle because it's given everyone a voice and and that kind of onslaught now exists so maybe the focus has shifted but it has shifted but it seems to me that the analysis that we get on on our core networks has become really detailed and i think supporters really appreciate that i think it's it's become part of their own lexicon in a sense yeah it, it's 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 a very interesting point you make about the emotive aspect of of sport uh because the you know to fans and to media and actually to those of us who've been privileged enough to work in the paddock at Formula One races, there is a lot of emotion involved and it's difficult to work at the forefront of a Formula One team and not get emotional. But of course, what that does, we know, is it, it can interfere with the quality and speed of decision-making. You know, you can have yeah. a group of engineer, a group of engineers, you know, can start having a a whole argument about, you know the direction that we need to go in and again where the, our data-driven sort of digital environment helps is it it provides if not answers it certainly provides provides a very strong clues and insights as to where the issues lie uh, i think the, the 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 thing which i love explaining to clients um that i speak to is that for well over a decade now, Formula One teams have been using mission control uh, rooms, rather like NASA use, you know, Houston Houston control. So a team like Red Bull Racing has a group of, you know, 25, 30 engineers sitting in a room in Milton Keynes monitoring the race, and not just monitoring the race, but actually getting all the data from both the cars and running the race strategy uh, from there. So the race strategy for Red Bull Racing is not run from the racetrack, it's run remotely. And Hannah Smith, who's the team's principal strategist, she's a, a Cambridge University qualified data scientist. You know, she she is the one who ultimately with her team calls the shots. So the, the decisions are being made in a very unemotional 
environment remote from the racetrack. And the engineers at the racetrack and the driver in the car are receiving very fast, high quality decisions made by people based on what they can actually see the data is showing them. And and that's improving outcomes. And again, going back to my point, you know, uh, around the sort of emotion. So the fans and the media love love the emotion of sport and they actually want great unpredictability. In fact, fans and media would love there to be chaos in every <laughs> Formula One race. And actually, the teams are working towards precisely the opposite. We are doing everything we can to achieve predictable guaranteed winning outcomes we don't want any chaos we don't want anything unpredictable so we're we're trying to in a very unemotive way uh, ensure that we achieve the the, the, the success of, of winning a grand prix so i guess when when bernie had his great idea of putting water sprinklers that would come on at random <laughs> moments on the track that probably horrified every engineer up and down the track up and down the paddock right <laughs> yeah absolutely well so and and you know it, it's it's so funny that you mentioned that because I I um, uh, think I even sort of tweeted about this recently and it only takes a little bit of moisture on the surface of a Formula One track to throw the whole race into chaos you know you just uh, you know Formula One cars and drivers generally don't enjoy mixed conditions they like a wet race or a dry race they don't really yeah. like wet and dry uh, Bernie Bernie obviously um, you know he was the ringmaster and of course he loved races where things were unpredictable because it made for good tv and it drove it audiences up and uh, uh audiences means more money quite frankly so he was uh, he was super keen on that idea but it is interesting how we have this conflict within the sport where you have the business leaders in formula one even today under liberty the owners of formula one see the business owners in formula one slightly rushing around trying to figure out how to make the sport more exciting and interesting and then you have these legions of engineers who are doing everything they can to make sure that it's, <laughs> as, it's as predictable as possible you know so i kind of sometimes think they really ought to sit down together and say listen what are we trying to achieve here because because um you know we, we've got to get a balance between you know the technical excellence that formula one demonstrates and putting on an entertaining and to some degree, unpredictable show for sports fans. I don't know. I would love to. Have, uh, I'd love to have uh, seen random water sprinklers. I think that would have been a. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I think that would have been horrible. Um. So, I just want to kind of jump back to your time in Jordan because one of the things that always I always loved about Jordan, and I think, and I don't know if you describe it the same way, but certainly they they felt it felt very they felt like a scrappy team and i meant that i mean that with full respect right i mean they felt like a team that was kind of like very agile like very kind of there was a lot of movement there you had drivers come and go people come and go it was kind of they're always fighting for the next engine deal or, or, or sponsorship deal and i think there yeah. must have been quite a lot you learned from being and then obviously when you went to red bull yeah. Red Bull evolved into being a very different team. Red Bull was quite a scrappy team when it started. It was uh, the party team and they had the Red Bull energy station. Yeah. Is there something to be said for that kind of scrappy starting area to a team to, to kind of give you that foundation? Or did, did, did you feel in horror of kind of going in every day and not knowing where Eddie would be kind of pointing and what, what he'd want to do? Um, well, uh, I think, first of all, I'll say that the two teams I worked for were remarkably similar in some ways. I often describe Red Bull as, you know, Red Bull is Jordan with a proper budget. 
um and, <laughs> <laughs> you I know, see that. Kind of, yeah it kind of you know party team um or at least they were the party team red bull of of slightly taken away that that approach these days it's a little harder harder edge but nevertheless fun team high energy brand literally high energy brand high energy activity jordan was very much like that eddie was um uh, and is remains you know an incredibly dynamic uh, uh, uh guy he was brilliant to work with uh it wasn't all, as i said it wasn't all sweetness and light he could be a tough taskmaster but at the end of the day it was his name over the door of the business and he had put his money on the line and his family home on the line to start the team and we all knew that so he, we we're working for someone who had really made a huge commitment and all he expected was for us to to be similarly committed when we came to work and i mean i'm actually please use the word scrappy because eddie would have described us as a bunch of scrappers you know we kind of <laughs> you know we we loved fighting for the next deal we loved fighting for the next win we loved fighting to really upset the big guys i mean we just used to love upsetting the big guys i mean my one of my key moments i mean no question about it one of my key moments was um when Ron Dennis, the chief executive of the McLaren team, said he couldn't understand how Jordan had a full portfolio of sponsors. He said, I mean, these people haven't they've hardly won anything compared to McLaren. <laughs> they've got, you know, they've got they've got these this amazing portfolio of sponsors. Well, of course, the reason was that we would go to sponsors and say, look, we cannot guarantee that we'll win every race or even win any race or win the world championship, but we can guarantee that a, you will have a brilliant time. B, we will work with you to make the sponsorship work Monday to Friday. So you're not dependent, you know, the success of the sponsorship will not depend on us winning races. The success of the sponsorship will depend on our formula one driver turning up to your, you know, uh, your trade show in Frankfurt and spending four days wowing your customers. It will, you know, the success of the sponsorship will depend on how we run that television commercial with you that you're so desperate to do. And, you know, we'll provide the car for that and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we really worked hard to deliver value for the customers, irrespective of what happened on the Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. And then if we did win a race, or if we did finish on the podium, or if we did score points, well, that was great. That was the icing on the cake. But you can't have a customer like like we have in Formula One being sold a deal purely on the basis of one metric for success. It, it needs to be something that's driving value for them. So we, we you know, we did we were a very, we did enjoy a fight. Um, we did enjoy trying to upset the big guys. And I think with Red Bull, when I went there, and I, I was only with Red Bull for a relatively short period of time, but um, I worked directly with Dietrich Mateschitz, the founder of Red Bull uh, as a global business. And uh, he had, had a number of one-to-one -one meetings with Dietrich. Uh, sadly, he passed away uh, uh, about eight months ago. And, you know, he, he was the, he he is he is really Mr. Red Bull, and Dietrich was actually not dissimilar to Eddie in that he was very driven. And actually, on one occasion, Dietrich said to me, "He said if we if we can achieve half of what Eddie Jordan achieved, he said I'll be a happy man because he said I want to win races, I want to become a a really notable player within the sport." Well, of course, Dietrich really committed and. When you see what Red Bull went on to achieve, and it's something that I very often talk about, is that 
for a company that is known as uh, a manufacturer of you know the world's leading energy drink they can also produce a better formula one car than ferrari or mercedes <laughs> or uh, or renault or aston martin uh, at the moment and when you really think about that and when you think about that fact that red bull have in many ways disrupted formula one and they've shown the car manufacturers that you don't need to be a car manufacturer to win in Formula One. You just need to be a well-structured, resourced, focused business with great leadership, a team of people who are aligned between behind a common goal and, and go out there and innovate your way to success. And I, I as a result, love I love watching how Red Bull are doing. And I'm very pleased to say that Christian Horner is someone that my my company uh, works with. In fact, we work both with Christian and Toto Wolf, uh, chief executive at Mercedes, from time to time. And I'm, I, I'm I guessing working, never at the uh, I'm guessing never at the same time, though, Mark. <laughs> not 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 this. You know, I I, I I have I I would love I'd love to have the two of them on stage at a conference one day. You know, to just sort of shoot the shoot the breeze. Because you know what, I think as they are quite different personalities in some ways. But actually, I think they have a lot of common attributes. Hundred you know, percent. Success, successful leaders tend to have quite common attributes. I mean, they are passionate about winning. I mean, they, well, you know, it's it is tangible. You know, you can see it written all over Toto and and Christian's faces, and and everything they do and say is towards trying to get their team to the front, to be number one, to stay number one. Uh, they have a healthy competition. It's a competitive mindset about the opposition. So, you know, they don't hate the competition. They just really, really want to beat the competition. And uh, and there's a huge focus on that. But both of them are extremely good at, uh, first of all, finding the right people to come and work for them, uh, letting those people get on with the job, making sure that they have the right tools to do the job to the best of their ability. And, and as a result, you know, Red Bull and Mercedes have now dominated Formula One for actually 15 years so if, if you include the brawn so the brawn grand prix team was the forerunner of mercedes it was actually mercedes engines when they won the world championship in 2009 so every world championship since 2009 has been won by the two teams based in brackley and uh, milton Keynes in the uk and so you have to say what what does that say about the other eight teams in formula one they haven't found the winning formula in a decade and a half it's so fascinating listening to the the thought process behind the the ambition of growing these teams and the the just the sheer will to win you know i i sometimes struggle to kind of encapsulate that um just the the and it, it it's inbuilt it's sort of innate i think you must be born with that level of just sheer competitiveness you know i've got it in a sense i don't like losing but i i don't think it i don't think it's on any level compared to the kind of great leaders in in sport and i wonder if i could ask you about taking that step into leadership um because no one starts their career as a leader you have to work your way up to that and there comes a sort of seminal point in your career where you become a leader, where you you have other people working for you and taking guidance and, and instructions from you. What are your thoughts on how people 
should go about making that transition and what makes a good leader for you, Mark? Yeah, you're certainly asking the right man that that question, partly because because my experience was not a smooth one. And, you know, the one of the downsides of uh, of my role at Jordan was that uh, and this is not a criticism of 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 Eddie Jordan, uh, but it was just the way things worked out. There was never any significant leadership training undertaken and career development. You just organically grew into the role that you ended up with. So I, when I started working with Eddie, I ran communications and PR. By the you know ten years later, I had almost forty people reporting to me. I was running all the commercial side of the business, running hospitality, sponsorship, marketing licensing, public relations, communications, crisis management, I mean, <laughs> everything sort of wrapped under me. And I had literally this large group of people looking at me for guidance and leadership every single day of the week. And I wasn't I wasn't always good at it. There were some days I was dreadful at it. And there were other times where, you know, people came up to me and said, you know, we really enjoy working with you because, you know, you give us the opportunity to do this amazing job and, you know, you're a very supportive leader. So, my experience was definitely the rough and the smooth all these years later and particularly with the work that I've done working with corporate clients over the years I really see the deep need for people as they move into a leadership role to to ask for help to go out and get that help and if it's not available in your own organization think about equipping yourself you know going out and you know there are courses you can do there are organizations you can join there are uh, groups groups of people that you can ask for mentorship and coaching because leadership is a lonely experience and you need to be equipped with the tools to deal with the you know what's required and all too often actually in formula one when we look at unsuccessful teams we find that the unsuccessful teams are struggling because their leaders are struggling and their leaders are struggling because they're perhaps micromanaging every aspect of, of what they're doing. So they're kind of falling into that trap of thinking, oh, you know, the only way we're going to get better is if I just control everything. So it's a command and control style of leadership rather than, you know, empowerment and rather than, you know, pushing out and devol- you know, devolving responsibility to the people who you've gone to the bother of employing, you know, let people get on with the job. So the, there is a tendency to fall back into command and control when people start, you know, to 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 feel the pressure of leadership. You know, so I'll start telling everyone what to do and I'll just manage everything myself. Leadership is about a, a, a very different style, in my view. It's it's a kind of servant leadership where you you get a group of people together and you you try and create a framework within which they can excel. You know, those young, whether they're young or old, you know, but no matter what, how much experience, just give people the responsibility to crack on with the job your role is to is to set the tone the trajectory the ambition you know this is what we're trying to achieve here's a very clear ambition here are very clear roles and responsibilities for all of you but you, that none of that happens organically you have to you know you have to learn it and uh it's so much better to get help early on and to develop the leadership uh, capability than to than to learn over a longer period of time with um, things both good and bad happening. You know, let's avoid the bad. Let's get help up front and make sure that 
from leaders, we're well equipped for the job. Mark, I'm going to be honest and say I could probably sit and talk to you um, for the rest of the day, let alone for the, the, the next 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so. But I am conscious that, of course, you are also recording this uh, and giving us your time whilst you're on holiday. So, look, Mark, um, this has been a really fascinating conversation. And uh, considering, Ollie, I think, I, think, I think I've done a pretty good job of not going too off-piste with Formula One. Uh, we'll dis we'll discuss it in the debrief later. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Mark, where can um, our listeners find out a little bit more about you? Yeah, well, you can find out about me um, through my company, which is Performance Insights. And we have a very nice website, performanceinsights.co.uk. I also have my own personal website, mark-gallagher.com. Uh, of course, I'm also on LinkedIn and, uh, yeah, very happy to talk to anybody anytime about Formula One. Um, it remains my my passion and a focus, a focus for me. And uh, as you can tell, I enjoy sharing insights from it. <laughs> and also, it's worth following Mark on Twitter as well, because um, your insights around the races, what's going on in in the world of Formula One and, and everything else is, is always fascinating. Um, so definitely worth doing that as well. Well, look, that's it for this episode of the Practice Evolution podcast. As always, you can find out more about Walters Kluwer Tax and Accounting UK by visiting walterskluwer.co.uk or connecting with us on LinkedIn or following us on Twitter. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark, again for joining us on this episode. Remember, listeners, you can subscribe, rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. We are available to download from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music and all other good podcast apps. And of course, we'll be back in a few weeks time with more exciting guests. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks. Thanks.